Join Dr. Robert McGoring for Outliving Cancer, the podcast that provides each patient the tools and information they need to outlive their cancer. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Nagorny, and we're here with Outliving Cancer. By way of introduction, I'm a medical oncologist, hematologist, and practicing internist in Long Beach, California. I am the founder of the Nagorny Cancer Institute located in Long Beach, California, where we conduct highly specialized studies for the selection of chemotherapy drugs the identification of new drug activities, and the improvement in patients' outcome using each patient's tumor to select their unique treatment. By way of introduction, what we do is to do biopsies, which are removal of tissues from patients. We then disaggregate or pull apart the cancer cells and expose them to drugs and combinations so as to probe the biology, the individual unique features of each patient to determine what drugs or combinations will work. How do we do it? Well, we start in collaboration with a surgeon. At the time of diagnosis, every patient needs a tissue biopsy. This allows the pathologists to examine the tissue, determine whether or not it's cancer, and the features of it that determine whether it came from a breast or a lung or a colon original. We do this because cancer patients today need help finding treatments. It's unfortunate, but over 150 years of cancer, modern cancer therapy, we really haven't had big impacts on the survival for many advanced diseases. And so the purpose of our approach to cancer is to make each patient's treatment fit their need. Every cancer patient is as unique as their fingerprint, and they need a treatment that unique. By uh, introduction further, I think it might be of interest to consider the very history of cancer therapy. The first chemotherapy drug ever introduced for the treatment of cancer for patients was known as nitrogen mustard. This drug, which was originally discovered virtually by accident after there was an explosion at a ship in Barry, Italy, this drug was then under a secret development taken through the military as a first possible weapon and secondly as a therapeutic. Working at Yale University, doctors Goodman and Gilman tested this new highly toxic derivative of mustard gas and administered it to patients, providing the first therapy for an advanced cancer using a medical treatment in history. That paper published in 1945 launched the era of modern chemotherapy. Shortly thereafter, an investigator in Boston named Sidney Farber, working with chemists, developed a compound that blocked the vitamin B folic acid. He recognized that by blocking that vitamin, he could treat children with acute leukemia. And so in 1947, Sidney Farber published the second paper in history on the use of a small molecule to treat cancer. 
groundbreaking discoveries that change the history of human cancer. So with these drugs and many more to come, once the development of cancer therapies was underway, first we established the National Cancer Institute. That was done under a law passed under FDR in 1937. And the National Cancer Institute was designated to identify treatments and interventions that could provide benefit for a disease that was at that time virtually untreatable. But the question was, how can we choose drugs? I mean, after all, we had nitrogen mustard and now aminopterin and then uracil mustard and a broad array of other drugs, 5-fluorouracil and other drugs that were coming along and being synthesized and developed by very, very capable chemists in collaboration between the National Cancer Institute and one of the principal developmental programs known as the Southern Research Institute in Birmingham, Alabama. During the 50s and 60s, drugs were being developed, sometimes several new compounds per year. By the late 60s and early 70s, there were literally dozens of chemotherapy drugs being tested and applied and used. But how did doctors know what to do? I mean, they had these new compounds, these new largely untested compounds, and they wanted to know how to use them. So they they began to develop what are known as treatment protocols. Treatment protocols are mechanisms by which you determine, well, is the drug safe? Can you give it to people? And there were a lot of very toxic compounds that fell off at that point because the first test of a drug, what's known as a phase one trial, had to determine whether there was a dose and schedule that wouldn't kill the patient. I know that sounds crude, but it turns out that the principal role of a phase one trial is not to see if the drug works, but to see if it kills you. So the phase one trials would determine if the drug could possibly go forward. Once a safe dose and schedule was determined, it moved to phase two. At that point, the drug that could be given was given to different cancers, colon, breast, lung, lymphoma, sarcoma. Each disease was tested in different schedules to see if there was activity. Did it do anything? Did sarcoma patients or lung cancer patients get better? If they did, If at least 15 or 20% of the people given that drug with that disease got better, the drug graduated to the next level, which is called a phase three trial. And a phase three trial determines whether the drug is better than anything else you've got out there. Now, as these trials were developed and as people began to use these drugs, they needed some way to guide their selections. And along came American Society of Clinical Oncology and guidelines from the American Association for Cancer Research And these protocols slowly morphed into guidelines. So with these drugs and with these protocols and with all of the available opportunities to give these brand new classes of drugs, how do we really choose a drug or a treatment? Well, knowing that you can give it, knowing that it has some activity in the disease, and knowing by comparing it with older treatments it's at least somewhat better, then the question then became, How do we give a drug to an individual? What do we do to say, well, you may have breast cancer, but is your breast cancer going to behave like your neighbor's breast cancer? In order to to proceed, we needed some vehicle, but the problem is we fell back on a kind of average patient, average outcome. That is, every cancer patient was considered to be 
absolutely the same as their neighbor. Everybody was going to get the same benefit, the same outcome, the same response rate, the same toxicity. This was obviously ridiculous, but it did become the norm because there was no way to really select one patient versus another. So the patients were, were shuttled into these cattle cars of treatment combinations and compared one to the next with statistical power applied to determine how everybody did, and the, and the treatments moved extremely slowly forward. The worst part of all this is that this isn't penicillin or another antibiotic. These are drugs that cause hair loss, nausea and vomiting, lowered immunity, damage to the bone marrow, even secondary cancers. So when you haphazardly administered drugs with an average patient, average outcome, many people became so afraid of the use of chemotherapy they would prefer to die than go through the pain and toxicity and low response rates of treatment. It turns out that even today in 2021, with all of our developments and advances, less than 50% of people who receive treatment for advanced cancers, solid tumors mostly, like lung and colon, less than 50% of patients show response. That is, you take a toxic drug, your hair falls out, your bone marrow is damaged, you feel terrible, and one out of every two people who go through all of that misery are not better. A recent report in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Open Network, found that of the 71 drugs approved for solid tumors between 2002 and 2014, those drugs improved progression-free survival, which is a measure of how long the drug continues to give you benefit. Are you getting any benefit and how long does it last? Improve the progression-free survival by an average of 2.5 months. And even more disturbing, those drugs, when applied in that way, provide an improvement in overall survival, living longer, of only 2.1 months. Now, with cancer chemotherapy, the single most expensive cost in medicine today we are spending $150 billion a year on cancer drugs. And when you add in the lost productivity of people in the prime of their lives at another $94 billion, we're spending over $200 billion a year on drugs that rarely work and are profoundly toxic. Toxic enough for many of my patients to say, no thank you. So how can we improve this? What can we do to take this rather uncomfortable dynamic and push it in favor of patients? Well, doctors clearly want to help their patients. There's no question about that. And the patients want to get better. So there needed to be vehicles, mechanisms, approaches that would allow doctors to make better decisions and those better decisions were based on a, a basic understanding, a pharmacologic understanding of how drugs work. So you start off with a brand new drug and you look at mechanism of action. What does it do? Does it damage DNA? Does it stop cells from synthesizing DNA? Does it prevent cells from pulling the DNA apart in the process of mitosis? So you want to get drugs that have differing modes of action so that you can come at the cancer cell through different avenues. Secondly, you want to assess the toxicity. How poisonous is this drug? And what kind of poison is it? Does it cause neuropathy, where you get numbness and tingling of your fingers? 
Does it cause lowered blood counts because it damages the ability of bone marrow cells to make new cells? Does it cause hair loss, nausea or vomiting, skin rash? These are all side effects. And if you give drugs that combine side effect with side effect, they can become intolerable. The next basis of cancer drug selection is just track record. Has it worked? Where did it work? What disease did it work with? What drug did it work well with? We look to published experience, clinical protocols, studies, large or small, that give insights as, as to where a drug might be effective. We look to the community. What are our neighbors? What are our colleagues giving? What happens when we go to a tumor board? What do they recommend? And then we look upon our own personal experience and familiarity with the drugs. We often hear in medical oncology and in the literature, on the radio and on television, we hear that we're moving in the use of therapies to an area called precision medicine. Sounds really appealing, precision medicine. We're going to precisely determine what to give patients. Now, precision medicine is predicated on a use of a word, precise, which I think really needs to be more closely examined. Precision is defined as the closeness of measurements to one another. Something that is precise hits the bullseye every time. However, reproducibility is not the same as accuracy. Accuracy is the state or quality of being correct. What patients want isn't a precise technology that reproduces their results over and over again. What patients want is accuracy that matches their cancer to the drug in, in, in question so that they get the right answer. Today, our scientists worship at the altar of statistical significance. And for them, the manna from heaven is precision. They want to be exactly reproducibly right. But they may be precisely wrong. Many treatments are highly carefully tested with highly precise technologies using gene profiles that are not working. What we need is to revisit this and move our precision medicine to accurate medicine. What we do in my laboratory, as we'll speak of over the coming weeks, is not precision medicine, but accurate medicine. So let's take a look at the fundamental principle, the basic approach that our scientists use in this field. Well, many of you have probably heard about the Human Genome Project, which finished in 2003. It was an international collaboration. And scientists all over the world used gene sequencing technologies, many of which were developed originally by Leroy Hood. And these technologies were used to dismantle the sequence of DNA, the, the base pairs that constitute each chromosome. So what is a chromosome? Well, humans have 23 chromosomes. And those 23 chromosomes, there's some disagreement here, but those 23 chromosomes code for at least 100,000 genes, and that number is not certain. The trouble is that once you've got 
once you've got the, the, the DNA sequence, once you've got this all worked out and the human genome is done, you now have the phone number of every gene. You've got like the world's most expensive phone book. You don't know what the gene does, who it likes, who it lives with, where it eats out at night. You don't know really much about it. You just know its phone number. So we have spent billions of dollars to get a gene phone book without any meaningful context to put that information into use. Why is it so complicated? Well, you start off with 100,000 choices and you develop permutations. Splice variants, non-coding DNA, pseudogenes, small interfering RNAs. These things are all getting in the way of what you think you know about cancer and cancer genes. There was a study published in Nature where they examined the pan-cancer analysis of the whole genome. They took 2,600 individual patient cancers and dissected them down to the most fundamental genetic elements that made them tick. 22 separate manuscripts described all the findings. What did they find? Well, they found that they couldn't really tell much. It was heterogeneous. They were confronting evolutionary biological principles that when a gene was on or off, it might interact uh, with another gene in a way you couldn't predict. There was complexity, redundancy, promiscuity. To put it simply, cancer isn't simple. So we recognize that. I started my career in the study of uh, cellular genomics and DNA degradation patterns and DNA gel electrophoresis and flow cytometry and the biochemistry of cancer cells. And we would dissect cancer cells down to their most fundamental basis. As we did so, we became, like many specialists, we became one of those people who knew more and more about less and less until we knew everything about nothing. I knew everything there was to know about chronic lymphocytic leukemia cells, their glutathione metabolism, their DNA degradation profiles, their membrane potentials, their mitochondrial potentials. Well, I knew everything. But it really didn't seem to affect the way my patients did when I treated them. So I had gone off as an MD into a realm that is really for PhDs, which is basic research. And basic research is beyond interesting and beyond exciting and beyond... Uh, uh, fraught with rewards. <clears throat> I mean, the people who get Nobel Prizes are very often PhDs because they have the time and energy and effort to go into the deepest reaches of cancer biology. But what they don't have is the ability to convert, to translate interesting discoveries into practical reality. That is the realm of the medical doctor. And that today is the realm of the translational scientist. Just like it sounds, translational science is responsible for making smart ideas, good ideas, useful ideas, practical ideas that help people. Over 90% of all the funding from the National Cancer Institute today goes to basic research projects, mostly under the tutelage of PhDs. Yet, there isn't a PhD in America that treats a patient. They can't. It's illegal. So the MDs now must be taking good ideas that the scientists come up with and make them practical reality. 
And that isn't working nearly as well as it should be. So I became interested as I was proceeding through my scientific publications, of which I did many in my earlier career. I still do a couple a year. But I began to realize that we had made a, a mistake. There was, a, there was something wrong with the way we were approaching cancer. And it was back to the idea of precision versus accuracy. We had stumbled upon very measurable things. We were really, really good at making reproducible measurements. And so those reproducible measurements focused increasingly on genes, cancer genes. And genes in chromosomes code for proteins that do things. So if you have a gene for blue eyes, you get blue eyes. If you have a gene for brown hair, you get brown hair. And if you have a gene that isn't working correctly, you can get cancer. At least we figured that. So we decided that we would go after cancer as a genetic disorder, and we would study the genes of cancer so that we could become experts on cancer biology. Well, just by way of definition, to explain to those who may not be in the scientific world, when one talks about the genetic basis of any disease or, or the genes that make up any organism from a roundworm to a human, those are called your genotype. Genotype is what makes you you at the genetic level. The genotype of each one of us is set in motion the moment we're conceived. One half from your mother, one half from your father, they get together and make you. And during the course of your life, you express the genes you have, you don't express the genes you don't, and that makes you you. But what you really are at the end of the day isn't just that blueprint. You're a three-dimensional structure. You're not a blueprint. You're a building. And for anyone who's ever done real estate and wants to show a new uh, complex of homes that they're building, they always build a model. And they invite people who want to buy a building, want to buy a house, who want to live there, to take a walk through the building. See what it feels like. What does it look like? Where is the bathroom in relation to the bedroom? How does the kitchen look? Would I be comfortable using this? How does it set into the area around it? What's the feel? What's the light? That's reality. That's the building. Blueprints are blueprints, and they're very interesting and they're useful, certainly. But if you have a blueprint that you give to a contractor who doesn't know what he's doing, and he builds your building on a sinkhole, or brings in a contractor that doesn't pour the concrete correctly, or reverses the uh, building so that the garage is on the wrong side or the front door opens up onto a blank wall, the interpretation of your genes, the use of your genotype, becomes your phenotype, and phenotype is the term we use for you. The three-dimensional, structure, functional, biological reality that is you. So we have a collection of scientists today who are convinced, positive, certain, that if they learn your genotype, they're going to know your phenotype. And they are being proven wrong every second of the day. Human tumor biology is a phenotype. It's a biological reality. It is biology. It is not informatics. 
Cancer is not an abnormality of information. It's, a, it's an abnormality of cellular biology, of cellular function. And so what we in my laboratory at the uh, Nagorno Cancer Institute realized many years ago was that there was an enormous gap between cancer informatics and cancer reality. That if you turn that gene profile over to the wrong cell, it will do things you can't predict, can't anticipate, and certainly can't treat. So what we wanted was the next level of rigor. How do we drill down onto cancer as a biological experience? And to do that, we needed to develop an entirely new platform of study, and that platform, the ex vivo analysis of programmed cell death, allows us to conduct functional analysis. Not blueprints, not projections on a wall, not mathematical formulas, not physical principles, but reality. Biological, three-dimensional, cellular biology. And that is what we do. We call it functional profiling. We're not interested in the genes because the genes may or may not be expressed. We're not interested in the, in the proteins because they may or may not be activated. We're interested in the physical reality of cancer, the functional reality of cancer, the three-dimensional reality of cancer. And to do that, and to study that, we use cancer. Not genes, not RNA, not protein. Cancer. We study cancer cells, and I, as a cancer physician, pride myself on the abilities that I have developed to kill cancer. If anyone asks what I do in my laboratory, I'll tell them very simply, I kill cancer. And I don't kill its genes. I don't kill its proteins. I kill the cells in a test tube, in an environment that recreates your body and makes it possible for me to find out what you are going to do when that drug or combination or biologic or targeted agent or metabolic inhibitor is administered to you by mouth or by intravenous or whatever route we take, whatever happens, if your cancer cell doesn't like it and dies, we're happy. In my laboratory, we study out of the body known as ex vivo, the process of programmed cell death. And when a chemotherapy drug works, no matter what mechanism, no matter what combination, no matter what it's given with or how it's given, if it works, your cancer cells will die. And if your cancer cells die in my test tube, they're more than twice as likely to die in your body. And in cancer medicine, that's considered a victory.